Welcome to the Witness and Persecution Podcast with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. We're taking a brief break this week from recording new episodes. And in its place this week, we wanted to share with you Nick's most recent message given to Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. We pray that it blesses, challenges, and encourages you to live out the Great Commission across the street and across the ocean. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, including our ministry, Nick Ripkin Ministries, we invite you to visit us at www.nickripkin.com. Thanks for being with us. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. I've prayed and prayed over this opportunity. Um, Really have a desire to communicate to you well um, what God might have in store for you and ask of you. Uh, First time that I tried to order food in the local language in Malawi, uh, I was trying to order a glass of ice water for my wife, not knowing that that would be something not for her to drink because of parasites. But I looked at the waiter, and he bent down at me and began to pucker up, and I had to put my hands against his chest and push him back. And I said to him in Chichewa, what are you doing? He said, you asked me to kiss you on the mouth. And uh, he was about to... Offer that up, though it wasn't on the menu. Now, I wish, I wish to the depths of my heart that that was the worst language mistake that I made. But if I told you the worst ones that I've made, uh, I would never be allowed back on the campus again. Now, it's taken me 37 years to prepare this message. And that gives me about a a minute a year. So we're going to squeeze that in, and I'm going to share with you a, a lot of biblical narrative that you are so familiar with, but you, you know what I've prayed over this convocation this morning? Knowing where, when I sit before uh, students from Bible colleges and seminaries were The vast majority of you will end up ministering to those who are Christians or marginal Christians. My my prayer coming out of this missions week is that 60 to 70% of you will investigate uh, spending your lifetime outside of the continental United States. That's my prayer over you. Because it's not about your needs, it's about the needs of the nations. Now, you, you know, you, you, you know to the nth degree about the passion of the Christ. You can quote it. You can tell the story. You can do it across the street. You can do it across the oceans. Uh, you, you know it's a story that you can retell in your sleep. You know the story. But often because you know the story so well, uh, you want to discuss it. You want to break it down into its component pieces. You, 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 you want to relegate it to the past tense rather than the present active tense. And, and what you do, even with the passion of the Christ, it's something that you study, uh, you, you parse its meanings, 
but you often fail to live it. Now, you know these parts of the passion narrative. Judas was on his way up the hill, ready to betray Christ and with those that he had brought with him to enforce that betrayal. And Jesus had gone off with some of his disciples to pray. And, and even though as Judas is coming up that mountain with his fellow conspirators, that Jesus uh, asked them to go with him and pray in this time of great need, and they fell asleep. They were so comfortable in being with him, and they were so comfortable watching him do the miraculous things that he did that had become commonplace to them. And so rather than doing the battle of prayer with him in his darkest hour, they fell asleep and weren't with him when he needed them the most. And here he is. He, he falls on his face in Matthew 26, 39. It says that he goes on a, a little bit further. He fell on his face to the ground. And, he, and as, as we know about Jesus, he's completely human and he's completely divine. And his human nature took over. And he said to God, God, I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass. What a strange statement. What, what, is, what, what a, I mean, he had told his disciples uh, for years, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is what, how the Son of Man is going to be offered up. Here, here's how he's going to be crucified, how, how he's going to rise on the third day. But now that he's facing it, he says that human part of him says, I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass just like John the Baptist. His back's against the wall. The sword is being sharpened. And he sends his disciples to ask in Matthew 11 just the dumbest question that John the Baptist probably ever asked. He, the one that prepared the way for the Christ, he asked of Jesus, are you the Messiah? Or do we wait for someone else? Ruth and I have sat with over 650 believers in persecution after watching 150 Somalis all but four of them were killed simply because they were followers of Christ. And in those 650 interviews, those who remained faithful in their faith, when their back's against the wall, they're saying goodbye to families. They know they're not going to see them again. They know that the end is near. The one thing they always want to know from you, if you are there, am I dying for the right reason? My body being broken for the right reasons. You see, you, you can look at this passion narrative. You can look at, at Hebrews chapter 11. And when you study it as a Bible, as an old book, authoritative book, a, 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 a book that's inerrant, infallible. Do you know that evil has no problem with you saying all of that as long as you continue the statement saying this is a clear, authoritative, 
inerrant word of God. It's a record of what God used to do. As long as you put it in past tense. It's something you study. And it's something you parse. And it's something that you discuss. And you don't cross the street and cross the oceans. The amount of threat to evil remains very minimal. But then as human nature was buried in that divine nature, when just as he breathed out, Father, let this cup pass, he said, but not my will, but your will be done. This is the Son of God on trial for his life. You know what he'd had to listen to? He had to listen to the top religious leaders of his time as he stood before the judgment seat of Pilate and Herod. And as the religious leaders of the temple were asked, shall we not release to you the, uh, your God? Uh, they, they cried out in response that they have no God but Caesar and if there ever was a time that the church in America needs to hear that we are not to be partners with governments of this world, we are to be witnesses to the governments of this world from the lowest, uh, meanest person, drug addicted in the streets of Louisville to the heights of governments of the world, they are to know who you are in Christ before they hear anything else from you. And Jesus hears them say that we have no God but Caesar beaten, stripped, weary beyond uh, human strength. Uh, they, they had so tore his human body down that they had to get somebody to carry his cross to Calvary. And there they nailed him to it. If you can hear that, if you can read that, if you can envision that happening to Jesus and treat it as a historical occasion, then it's no wonder why what I'm going to say to you soon is true. And the heart of what I want to share with you, so Matthew 27, verse 45 through 46, where it's right in the middle of the seven last words of Jesus. And it says, from noon unto three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son, totally obedient, forsaken by his father, that even in the midst of the agony of the cross, Jesus goes back what he had learned from the very beginning, from Psalms. You, you, you know how Psalms 23 starts, don't you? That Psalms that just soars and takes your, your soul to the heavens. 
and, and, and starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. But it's preceded by Psalms 21.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? What I suggest to you in this chapel on this day. And oh, I'm skirting the abyss. Spiritually. What I want to suggest to you in this chapel on this day. That it is possible that what we are doing that we're doing everything we can to take those sins that were carried away by Jesus and return them to the souls of majority of the peoples of the globe. Don't need to say that again. What I want to suggest in this chapel on this day is it is possible that we are doing all that we can to take those sins carried away that caused him to be forsaken by God because he took your and my sins upon him. But it is possible that we, through our keeping our witness to ourselves, keeping it in our churches, keeping it in our country, it is possible that we are returning those very sins to the souls of the majority of the peoples of the globe and I know, I'm fully aware that Jesus said, it is finished. And he was saying to the Father, I have done everything that you sent me to do. I have taken the sins of the world up on myself. It is finished. It is done. I have accomplished my task. And yet Jesus is asking us in this chapel, can we say the same? What was finished? His work, his sacrifice, his availability, his atonement for sin. That was his work. Has it become our work? He had taken the sins of the world upon himself, yet how many souls in our world? How many souls in my world? How many souls in your current world have grasped this eternity-altering truth that Jesus has already taken upon himself the forgiveness of their sins, but because they have never heard that truth, their sins are still up on them, and we have not released them from their sins through the grace of Jesus Christ because we've chosen to stay rather than to go. Have the sins Jesus paid for with his life returned and inhabit the souls of the majority of the globe's people. The reason why I'm so forceful is because I tried to do this myself. I'm guilty. Four Somali believers came to me and they said, Dr. Nick, we haven't had Holy Communion for 10 years. You know why? You want to know why? You know why. Because the workers that were there before we ever dreamed of going 
had infected them with a certain type of Western theology that says that without ordained seminary, Bible college trained uh, men, that the experiences of the of baptism, of, of leading church, of experience the holy uh, presence of Almighty God through things like Holy Communion was not able to be offered to them because in the history of their people, uh, they'd never had such an experience. And they said, Dr. Nick, we've got these two dominies, pastors that come from Holland that uh, want to give us Holy Communion that we haven't had for 10 years. We don't know them, but we know you. Will you be with us and make sure that everything is okay? And so I'm sitting in a, in a torn out, bombed out shell of a third floor, fourth floor apartment in Mogadishu, and I can see uh, these two pastors uh, sitting on my right at a broken table, and they're, they're serious. They, they know the environment they're in. Uh, they're, they're reading by rote a, 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 a Eucharistic service, but uh, they're in the moment. And I'm watching them, and as they broke the bread, my eyes are focused on my four Somali-believing brothers, and as the bread was broken, they shivered as if that was their own bodies. And as the wine, as the juice was poured into smaller cups to be handed out, uh, they looked at each other, and I, I just knew uh, because people were being martyred, not, uh, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis in that city at that time. They looked at each other and, and, and they said, this is us. This is how we're being poured out. And two weeks later, I go to a security briefing every morning at 7 o'clock with the U.S. military. And, and there's about 100 people in the room, military all over the place, United Nations people, uh, Somali leaders, non-government organization. And once the doors are closed and locked, nobody is supposed to come in. And we're being told where we can go, where we can't go, where there's fighting, where there's no fighting. All those things that they teach you in seminary, you know. Uh, you know, how to ride in Humvees and when to duck and what you do when, uh, when General ID surrounds uh, your feeding site and kills 18 Pakistani Muslim soldiers that gave their life so that six Southern Baptist nurses could escape with theirs. And the door was forced open. The guard is trying to pull a brother back. He was the member of the only Christian, openly Christian organization that was still in Mogadishu. Uh, they'd been in that country since 1898, folks. We got there in 1992. What's wrong with this photograph? And he broke in and he's sobbing. And he says to this room filled with military people and secular people and Muslim people, they're killing everybody we love. They've already killed in 45 minutes this morning from 7 to 7.45 for Somali believers. And they've told us if we don't pull out by 7 o'clock tonight, they're going to kill every 
Somali Christian that's related to us, and they were gone by 7.30 that night. And I waited till that meeting was over, and I'm saying to myself, oh, God, Lord, don't let it be those four brothers that I was with just two weeks ago. I, I don't know. I could never explain to you who I want to have killed, but I said, I don't want it to be these four brothers, and I got on my little shortwave radio outside of that meeting and called back and talked to my Muslim chief of staff, and he affirmed it was exactly those four men that had been killed in a 45-minute period. For 25 years, 25 years, we never had a Somali's body at their funeral extremists took their bodies and threw them in latrines, threw them in uh, garbage heaps, threw them in the Indian Ocean where sharks fed. We never for 25 years had a Somali's believer's body at their own funeral. And I'm hurt and I'm angry at God. And I asked my guards to get almost out of sight. They, they, they couldn't let me out of sight. And I'm walking through the rubble and I'm saying, asking God, are you sure you're on your throne? Or do you, do you know what's going on? Do you not know that if you don't intervene, that every Somali believer in this country is going to be killed? And I said, God, it's time. It's time. I just took on every piece of Old Testament persona that I had, and I said, it's time. They are killing everyone that loves you, everyone that follows you, everyone that honors you. And I said, Lord, it's time. You, you just need to take these Somalis and wipe them off the face of the earth because they do not deserve the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit said to me in an audible voice, neither do you. And I said, how dare you? Don't you dare put me in the same boat as these Somali killers. And the Holy Spirit said, no, Nick, you're worse. You had 100% access to the kingdom of God for the first 18 years of your life, and you ridiculed me. And your family uh, talked bad about my people, and, and you used my church for uh, secondary reasons and you ran from me for your first 18 years and for 18 years of your life you had total access to the kingdom of God and, and you denied me and you rejected me and you ran from me and so if I am going to take out someone who should I take out first someone who's had total access to the kingdom of God and curse me are those who've had little or no access to the kingdom of God. And I said to the Holy Spirit, I'll get back with you. Exactly how it happened. The sins that Jesus had died to finish. The sins that he was forsaken to bear, I tried my best to resurrect those sins and give them once again to the Somali people so that they could die and go straight to hell. There's a story in the Old Testament that my wife and I love, and we mention it often to each other. She tells me it's a favorite passage she's ever heard me speak, but there 
is not a good story for the most part. Uh, there's a famine in Samaria. Uh, the, the heads of donkeys are going for astronomical prices just so people would have something to eat. There is cannibalism going on within the walls of the city. And the Arameans are outside uh, with all of the wealth that they have plundered and with their armies and they've encircled the, the people of God. And if the people inside the city are bad off, there are four men who are worse off than all others in chapter 7. These are four leper guys. And they said, if we go back into the city, we die. If we stay here, we die. The only option we have is to throw ourselves on the mercy of the Arameans. And if we die, we die. But it's the only hope we've got. And they asked the question of themselves at the gate of the city. Why sit we here until we die? We'll go. If we go in the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. And they found that God had plundered the camp of the Arameans and the jewels and the loot and the food and the animals and everything was there. And these four despised Leprous guys who had been kicked out of the walls of the city by the inhabitants there took the good news that they had that the enemy had been destroyed, had been routed by God and took it back to the city to those who had rejected them and despised them and left them at the mercy outside of the gate. Where are these billions of people, these sin-clothed and sin-inhabited billions in our planet, from snow-covered mountains to the hottest of deserts, they live inside environments that are so expensive where security can never be guaranteed and where current response to the good news remains at 0% to as much as 2%. They dwell where denominational identity is a hindrance to the gospel and the good news being heard and accepted. The peoples of the earth cry out in their unforgiven sins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Where any response to Jesus is met with persecution that is punishable unto death, as it says in Revelation 2.10. Where the personal cost to Christ carriers, our singles, our couples, our children, and our teams is ghastly high. The peoples of our time and on our earth cry out with their sins unforgiven. And shall we sit here until we die, ask the four lepers. And that question is what I ask of you. When will we connect the potentially forgiven, the potentially forgiven, with the one that forgives? 
We resurrect theologies that seemingly confuse the sovereignty of God and use it as an excuse for our own disobedience. How many unreached and unengaged peoples inhabit the earth? Uh, I'm editing a book by doctors of psychology. They can't write anything less than four syllables. I have to edit with a dictionary open before me. Now these, they call the unreached, unengaged frontier peoples, and they say there's one billion of them. If you go on to Facebook and you look at what, it's been a few months, but David Platt says the unreached, unengaged, number 3.1 to 3.2 billion. Well, that's different from 1 billion. The Joshua Project says that 3 billion 397,084,000 live in unreached environments. They further say that on their website that the 100 largest unreached people groups total 1,868,527,000. The IMB says that 59% of the globe is unreached, totaling $4.6 billion. So Christendom, last night, I rechecked, says when we look at those who have absolutely little or no access to gospel, total anywhere from 1 billion to 4.6 billion. You know what that tells us? Tells us we don't know. Tells us we don't know. Why don't we know? Because we're not there. How, how can we know? In, in, in the midst of these billions, whether God is doing a mighty act or whether Satan rules, whether God has got Abraham on the move, if, if he's calling Ezekiel out, if he's got Esther going before the king, if he's got Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach standing up, or, or is there just blanket darkness? We, 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 we don't know. Ruth and I led a five-day workshop for some partners who are working in what I would consider the most demonic, uh, locked-in, spiritually place on the planet. We're a family of four. When they sing songs to God, they sit with their knees touching one another, and they let their mouths move, but they don't let any sound come out because if their voices are heard singing, and it goes through the paper-thin wall of apartment or out a window, door of a small house. Security police are going to be there before the sun goes down, and three generations of your family will be taken to a labor camp because you sing out loud to God. Now, when I ask these people, knowing what I know about that country— how, how many house churches, how many believers were there? They told me there were 250,000 believers in thousands of house churches. And I knew that's not right because what I could find was groups of two and three or four in 10 or 12 or 15 places. But for political reasons and for fundraising reasons and for bragging rights, they were talking about 250,000 believers in thousands of house churches, and I knew it wasn't true. It's more propaganda than substance and a fundraising strategy, and as I researched it, I found the exact same statistics uh, 
1951 for that country. And it had just been borrowed and borrowed and handed down and handed down. Folks, what you've got to let don't know be is don't know. And we truly, we don't truly know why. Because we're not there. Why stay we here until we die? Or the billions of the world die and go into eternity without Jesus. When we are publicizing that there's a billion unreached to four point some billion unreached, what that says to us as researchers and those who have a heart for the nations is, we don't know. And we need you to go find out. Because we don't know. This day, the peoples of the earth, of our earth, cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you left us in our sins? The simple answer is, uh, He hasn't. We have. We have. Oh, Lord Jesus, 37 years was a blink of an eye. And I deeply regret that faithfulness does not always result in a harvest. But it always results in faithfulness. And now we know for one corner of the earth what we didn't know. And we wonder why we didn't go sooner. Why we didn't share more. Why we didn't take others more often with us. Father, when we find the good news, let's take it back into the city. Let's take it to our neighbors. And may this be the generation starting in this place on this day that can say authoritatively, this is the spiritual map of our world. And these are the peoples of the planet that have no access to Jesus Christ. These are the ones who have a little these are the ones that have a lot more. And may this generation be the generation where 73% of all missionaries no longer go to Christian countries alone. Lord, don't let us sit here till we die. Because we've discovered life. We've discovered it abundantly. And we have experienced the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>